Welcome to episode 227 of the No Persinium Podcast, the voice of everything immersive. I'm your host, Noah Nelson, coming to you from the No Pro Studio, air quotes, it's the kitchen table, here in Los Angeles. This week on the show, we have Lincoln Jones, the artistic director and choreographer of the American Contemporary Ballet here in LA. Uh, They've uh, been putting on their version of the Nutcracker this month, uh, which is a um, uh, it, it it uses some um, uses some immersive uh, techniques at uh, the the start of the show to kind of like establish uh, a sense of tone and place and 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 kind of well we're going to talk about it because they they do a lot of clever things uh in setting up uh what is then um uh, you know a uh, a dance show uh where people are, are are seated um although one thing we don't get into in in this is that um there are some points when uh sweets and treats and candies are 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 circulated to the audience at at certain points in the show uh for funsies um and uh and and that is indeed fun um <laughs> Uh, I, I'm in a weirder mood than usual uh, because uh, I'm, I'm about to go have a tooth extraction. Fun. Sorry. No warning to everybody on that one. I know uh, a few of you just winced because um, you know what I'm about to go through. So no general anesthetic either. Mm-mm, this one's a local. So uh, I, I've got I've got some gallows humor going on. Let's uh, dive into a couple of bits of business. I'm going to do them in, in, in different orders so uh, you don't spin away. First up, let's talk about the Here Summit. Uh, Badge uh, the badge pre-sale has started up for those folks who are uh, previous attendees of the Immersive Design Summits. Um, they've been able to purchase badges this week uh, if they pre-registered. Uh, if you are someone who's previously attended a IDS and you're like, hey, what do you mean the sales are on? I didn't hear anything. Well, um, you've got uh, you've you've got the sheer cacophony of social media to thank for that, uh, but they've been they've been on pretty much all week. Uh, run over to herefest h e r e f e s t dot com, uh, click on badges, and then click on pre register, and uh, an email will get sent to me. And then uh, while I'm recovering from this extraction, I will send you an email. Uh, that says here you go, go go have fun buying things. Um, those of you who uh, have uh, applied to previous IDSs but have not uh, uh, didn't 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 get an invitation to go, uh, badge sales are going to be open up to you on the seventeenth. So just four days from now, we're going to open it up, and this pre-sale uh, in total is going to put uh, a total of a hundred tickets are going to be uh, up and available as part of the pre-sale. And uh, they're just at $500 a piece. Uh, next month, um, we open it up even farther uh, to folks who uh, have neither applied nor attended. Uh, but also the price does jump up to $600. So uh, if you want to get the lower rate, you get in this month. Uh, we've got some more programming announcements coming in next week and a whole bunch more before we open up at the full price. Cause again, you're in the pre-sale you're saying, Hey, I got faith in you guys. And, uh, indeed we're working some deals out with folks right 
now. Um, we're going to have some satellite events. Um, I'm going to put that out there in the world. We've been talking to some folks about that. We're going to we're gonna get some stuff together. Um, and so for those who can't make it at all, we, we're, we're looking you know, for things to do both before and after the summit, uh, but also as ways for the local communities uh, in, in, in the different regions can, can get together uh, and sort of you know, form, form delegations and parties. And then as people come to the summit and, and meet each other from across the regions, uh, then go back to their, their general area. Um, a lot of this is about community organizing, right? Um, and that's one of the things we do over with the summit. It's something that we do virtually with NoPro. And it's something that indeed in LA we've been working on with Leia. And we're going to have a, a lot of news out of Leia at the top of the year because uh, the, the the final pieces of the puzzle are all in place. And uh, we just got to push some buttons and uh, do certain things for tax purposes. Because taxes. Hey, speaking of which, um, taxes and laws and whatnot. If you're in California... Uh, you may or may not be aware of AB5, which is this new freelancer law, which is going to cause havoc. It is causing havoc right now uh, with anyone and everyone who freelances for a living. Uh, writers are particularly screwed. Um, uh, I know this personally because I'm being particularly screwed by this. Um, so are some of my dear friends uh, who write all being screwed by this this whole thing, uh, all of which was uh, this, this attempt to... Um, keep folks who are driving for Uber and Uber and Lyft and working for TaskRabbit or Instacart and all these things to keep them from being screwed, then suddenly everyone from yoga teachers uh, to musicians all are are being are being just just messed with. What is to be done about it is something that uh, we're we're gonna look into here a bit, but there's been so no one really understands what's going on, and and the law has been really written in a very messy way, uh, a messy way that obscures. There's more lines in this law about how this affects fishermen than how it affects anyone else, which just tells you that guess whose unions and lobbies uh, were were at the table, fishermen's, um, but nothing about actors, nothing about musicians, nothing about all kinds of independent artists. Uh, again. Not even about yoga teachers, right? So how is this going to affect everybody? Um, there has been some motion in the dance world, which is appropriate because uh, for today, because we're talking with uh, we're talking with Lincoln uh, of of American Contemporary Ballet, um, and somebody heard the Dance Resource Center has uh, done some work on this uh, and uh, I think has a white paper out. I just learned about that yesterday from our friends over at LA Stage Alliance. Um, and some of those rules are gonna gonna apply to, to those of us in our world. A lot of people, what they're doing is they are um, making LLCs uh, and they're making LLCs in order to, um, you know, avoid the big, big problems that are gonna come and then they just hire out the business. Is it absurd? Is it ridiculous? Is this one of those things that makes you go, uh, oh yeah, it does. Uh, and it's going to mess with the bottom lines of a lot of people. But um, right now, we're at the mode of do your own research, but also look to make sure that uh, the advice you're getting is uh, you can trace it back to a lawyer and particularly a labor lawyer. Um, and from what we know, uh, people have reached out to politicians on this, uh, writers and some other folks who are going to be negatively effective have reached out. And uh, there's been a lot of clap back from the politicians uh, who have written the law, uh, who are just like, no, 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 we're doing this for your good. You don't know any better, um, which just is, is always a disheartening thing. 
um, when when politicians don't listen to the constituents. And I get why we've come to this place, but again, the pendulum has swung um, kind of in a in a in a south by northeasterly direction. How does that work exactly? That's my point. How does that work? Here's something fun though. This came in over the wire from our friends over at ILM XLab. Let's say you don't have an Oculus Quest, but you keep on hearing me talk about the lightsaber dojo. And let's say you live, you know, either near Mountain View or Huntington Beach or Ontario or Torrance or near Grapevine, Texas or near Elizabeth, New Jersey. Let's say you live in one of those spots, right? Why, why so specific, Noah? Well... The Lightsaber Dojo is coming to those spots. Uh, ILM uh, XLab has teamed up, gotta say the words right. <laughs> They've teamed up with a location based VR company Nomadic uh, to do some pop ups this holiday season of the Lightsaber Dojo. Um, lucky you, it's you. If you go and do this experience, uh, which uh, it's going to be, uh, tickets are available on a walk-up basis, and it's like nine 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 a person. Um, you're gonna be able to. Uh, ha- you'll have all the stuff unlocked, all the powers, uh, all the powers, all the lightsaber hilts, and oh my god, there are such good lightsaber hilts in this thing. Um, all all of that's going to be there for you to play with, and um, they're doing six pop ups in uh, Cinemarks uh, and other spots. So Cinemark Century Cinem. 16 in Mountain View, Century Huntington Beach, and XD in Huntington Beach, and Simon Center locations including Ontario Mills, Del Amo Fashion Center in Torrance, Grapevine Mills in Grapevine, Texas, and the Mills at Jersey Gardens in Elizabeth, New Jersey. Now, please don't don't go to some place that just happens to be a mill and expect to find a lightsaber dojo. These are specific mills that will have the lightsaber dojo. Um, I know that you want to have an adventure, but don't please don't find, fall down a um, a mineshaft looking for the lightsaber dojo. And again, uh, this is great if you're not going to be able to get your hands on a quest uh, this season, uh, give you a little taste and, uh, you know, just make you more jealous. I mean, uh, make, make you more excited, right? That's how that works. I don't know. I don't does anything work anymore? That's a real question for you right there. No, this is great. And uh, thanks for the heads up uh, gang over at ILM X lab for telling us about that. Um, okay, uh, now an update on the Patreon. Uh, our latest backer is Mr. Stephen Bray. Uh, we are up to uh, 315 backers and $1,851, which is really great. Um, as always, you know, it's a far cry from where we need to be. But thank you all so much for getting the word out and for boosting Signal. It helps so much. One, I mean, psychologically it helps a a huge amount, but it helps so much for people to get the word out. Um, you share it, invite people to like us. Um, I, I saw someone the other day, uh, it wasn't us. It was somebody else. I uh, was running around inviting people. It wasn't even something they were part of. And they were just inviting people to like the thing. Um, you know, feel free to do that. Uh, bring people into EI, uh, all these, all these, uh, all these things, you know, tell people about us, about our Twitter, about our Instagram, um, we're, we're a small little operation and we run by word of mouth and the more word of mouth we can get going on, uh, for the publication is the more word of mouth we can get going on for all of the productions. And that lets there be more, a bigger pool of an audience, which lets there be more tickets sold, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It only works when we're working all together and, um, it doesn't take a lot of effort it feels like a lot. I know it feels, it's, it's every, it feels like a whole bunch to me. Um, but, but a little bit, a little bit goes 
a long way, whether you have a half a dozen followers or a half a million followers uh, out there on the social media. Uh, please, we need your help. And the folks who help us the most on a regular basis are our sustaining backers, Mark Baltazar, Jan Budman, Paul F., Lonnie Hanson, Ari Hurston, Sam Kinkin, Samuel Mustry, Sidney Guillory, and Jeremy Charles Hahn. Thank all of you for continuing to put your faith in me and us, the team that we're talking about. Catherine and Kevin and Anthony and Blake and Brianna and Lauren and... Oh my God, I'm going to mess everything else up in KJ and Will. How can I forget Will, who's been killing it for us in VR? Uh, and Edward and Michaela. And oh God, if I don't do everybody by memory, everyone's going to be upset. Look, it's Romper Room. All right, sooner or later, Miss Nancy has to give in and I tap out right now. All right. Also, I am hopped up on just uh, ibuprofen right now and it's wearing off. Um, and the real fun doesn't even start till later. So look, uh, you want to have a fun podcast. I want to get you that fun podcast. Let's do this. This is our interview with Lincoln Jones, the artistic director and choreographer of American Contemporary Ballet. And we will be back uh, with a little bit more after the interview. <laughs> I usually say this before I start recording. This is always just a conversation. So um, uh, I got a chance to see uh, your guys' Nutcracker mm-hmm. uh, the other night uh, in this lovely space you have here. Maybe you could uh, maybe actually start with, with the space here. This is your rehearsal space and also your performance space. Here. Yes, uh, we are here until um, uh, through February. We uh, were in a, a semi-permanent space for quite a while. And then um, we had to move out of there. So we've been sort of space hopping for about a year and we're moving into a permanent space uh, starting with our June show. So this is where we've been, uh, where we were for our last show and where we'll be for our next one as well. And this is your ninth season. This is our ninth season, yes. So uh, tell us a bit about American Contemporary Ballet. Well, um, I started ballet pretty late. I started when I was 20. And uh, my God, that's too that's too old to begin the training. It's too old, too old to begin the training. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but I see you finished what you began. So, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I'm a giant Star Wars nerd. No, no. <laughs> um, so yeah, I uh, soon after I started, uh, I just I have always been really more creatively uh, bent than athletically, I think, and um, mm. so I, you know, had a lot of ideas and just things I wanted to do. And, um, I think maybe I had a little bit of a different perspective on the art, you know, than people that started when they were very young. So, uh, I had a lot of just really strong ideas that I I wanted to work on. And some of them turned out to be terrible ideas and some of them turned out to be ones that worked out better and that I liked. And, uh, so that was really the, the beginning of American contemporary ballet was, um, I just wanted to do things a certain way and, when I started out, I didn't realize how central the ballet company itself is to the art. Um, it, the ballet company is um, the dancers you choose, how you train them, 
um, the, the way that you present is so important to the final product, more so than I, I really realized when I was younger. So in a way, I got lucky to find out that I did the thing that I had to do mm. sort of accidentally. Yeah. yeah. And, and the, the company, did you, you, my, mom, my mom was uh, trained as a, as a dancer and uh, has, a, has a degree in choreography. Um, and uh, well, actually, it's a music degree because back when she was doing it, they, didn't, they weren't handing those out yet. Um, and, and I, like, well, in college, I was a theater student. Um, they, the Oakland Ballet did a, a reconstruction of uh, Nijinsky's Bolero. Uh, like the full Diaghilev, like, you know, like they, they, they researched the set, they like did the whole thing and it was just like absolutely spectacular. And so for a hot minute, I was like really into the history of the ballet Russe mm-hmm. and just how much, um, how much attention to detail and how much of a, of a, of a spectacle they managed to, to make out of their work, particularly cause you know, I was growing up, you know, eighties and in college in the nineties and like most productions I would see were like very, very stripped down. Like, you know, the theatrical elements kind of like been kind of washed away. So there's something interesting that you're doing here, um, where you're, you're bringing in, uh, you know, in, in your pre-show elements, uh, you've got a little immersive action going on. And so I'm, I'm wondering what, how that came about because there's this lovely sequence when people first show up uh for the nutcracker in here where you've got the dancers at these at these desks and it feels like you've walked into like a stripped down version of like a 1960s secretary pool or something and there's some absurdist kafkaesque like comedy going on so like how does that come into the picture well uh the the thing that I liked about the Ballet Russe that always fascinated me about them was how at the center of Parisian and therefore sort of world fashion culture they were at the time. You know, everybody was working with them, Picasso, Chanel, Stravinsky. Um, and I, I really liked that. And that's something that I think was not specifically that I had the Ballet Russe in mind, but um, I definitely wanted to do some things that felt culturally relevant. So it didn't, uh, the idea of, you know, using a 19th century style opera house and presenting, you know, 19th century ballet in a 19th century way didn't appeal to me. Uh, so the immersive element came, you know, actually when I started doing this, I didn't even know the word immersive. I hadn't seen anything immersive. Um, I just, when I pictured Nutcracker, I had the idea of the audience walking into this sort of spectacular winter environment. Um, and then when we did our first, the first year I did it, I had this idea of how much more spectacular would the feeling of walking into this space be if you were in the worst possible environment beforehand. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. And, and so the first year that we did it, oh, I constructed this office. We were, we were on a skyscraper and I constructed this office that I, with the art director, I said, I, I want to... Um, the set designer, I want to make this like the last place that a kid wants to be Mm. Um, or an adult really. Yeah. And so we, we made it look like, um, like I would remember, you know, when I was a kid going to work with my dad and we'd go to a, you know, a vendor or something of his, he, at the time he was an interior designer and, uh, just, I would be bored out of my mind. So we created the shipping office, what looked like 
Um, and we, we had a secretary, we hired this actress that looked like, you know, she'd been planted at her desk for 20 years and hadn't moved. We got magazines like, you know, National Geographic's from 1992 and put them on the, the chairs. Um, it makes me sad that 1992 is old. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that's another, that's another podcast. Right. Uh, and so we uh, kind of dirty walls and so forth. And there was just one door that looked like an industrial door with a, um, one of those placards that you see on your desk if for like an accountant or something or on the door for the, you know, the fake wood grain, mm. uh, plastic, yeah. uh, things that would say like, you know, um, Sue Richmond CPA, you know, yeah. and, uh, and it just said nutcracker suite on it in the most like boring way. And, uh, so the secretary, I told her, you know, um, be bored. Don't, you know, be unhelpful. Uh, just say that if people ask if this is where the Nutcracker Suite is, say you think they're owned by your parent company, but you're not really sure, and just take a number and sit down. <laughs> 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 um, and, you know, some people bought it through the entire thing. Like, some people got it, I think, but some people got upset. And and uh, some people got upset the whole way through. When they were leaving, they were like, you know, that show was great, but that woman was absolutely unbearable. <laughs> And so I don't know why I have no I know, I have no sympathy for such people. Like, I'm just like, oh, great. <laughs> well, for me, you know, all the better that you know that it it made it this contrast. So then the next year, uh, we were in the same space, and I was going to do the same thing, except I was except I was going to make the office smaller. I was going to lower the ceiling and squeeze the walls. Oh, you were going to being John Malkovich it <laughs> sort of yeah, yeah. yeah. the, and, the 13th uh, and a half floor. So yeah. And, uh, but then I don't know if you know about this, but we got kicked out of our space mm. two days before that was to open. I know, I know you guys lost the space. I didn't realize it was like, that, yeah, that it was, time. it was unbelievable. And if, you know, having seen the show, you can imagine the amount of time it takes to, to get the, um, interior space looking like that. So yeah. that was really, really difficult. So we had, I, I think it was maybe three days. So we had like 72 hours essentially to find a new space, get it set up, you know, do this whole thing. And, uh, the new space we were in, it wasn't possible to construct this small office. Also, we didn't have the budget for it anymore. So we ended up putting up these white curtains to, uh, divide the space up. And I, I, all I had time was to do was to, you know, I had this red telephone from our previous ballet. And so this time I thought I would have it be a young secretary who, uh, would just respond to you in these sort of absurdist ways. Um, and she, <laughs> we had four of them and they were great. Um, you know, it, it was just sort of, uh, these non sequiturs you'd say, um, you know, is, is this where the nutcracker is? And she'd say, Oh, I think we have snacks downstairs and you just couldn't get to a meaningful answer. And then this year I thought I just had this idea of six secretaries and, you know, turn this, this sort of Kafka bureaucratic nightmare. I don't know if you got a form. I got two forms. Okay. Yeah. So, <laughs> so um, I had a lot of fun. With yeah. Forms, so. And it's funny because it all depends. It seems on the first person to arrive, mm -hmm. you know, there's a hundred seats in the show. The first person, if the first person to arrive does not interact with the secretaries, no one will. If the first person does, they all will. And so a lot of the times the shows will just have people sit back there and stare at the secretaries and they're instructed not to engage. They'll just sit there and, and wait and, and stare into space on their desk. Well, given that, that you want to at baseline create that atmosphere of like, you know, 
the worst place in the world. Yeah. Like that definitely that that carries over there. Like I wasn't. I mean, when we tend to go to this stuff, we, we we think in terms sometimes in 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 terms of story and experience design. So I was like, I couldn't find a connection between what was going on out here and and the Nutcracker. But now that frame of like it's it's a tonal thing. Yeah. Like and and that part of experience design, particularly the idea of a flip. Um, that's something that's that's fantastic because once you do walk through, you're in this, you're in another unexpected space. You're in this, you know, winter wonderland, and there's snow on the floor, and there's mechanical people, and and there's a lovely bit where there's there's one of the girls is is ice skating on on yeah. the on the dance floor area, and it, again, just a wonderful tonal shift. Like, what do you what do you feel that that going for these effects? adds to the overall work you talked a bit about wanting to be like in, in conversation with you know um with 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 modern cultural you know w- you know in contemporary being contemporary the way that the ballet russe was contemporary so what what is the essential elements here well i think that um the i grew up on film you know like everyone in my generation did and so i think that uh there's scares a, me the fact that like there's there's generations coming that aren't. Yeah, <laughs> yeah seriously. I grew up on PewDiePie. You know, <laughs> ah. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> no, but it's you know I, I grew up in a very a very visual but also musical you know because music is such a big element in film and atmospheric um, culture. But then my ballet uh, the 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 one that I look to in ballet the most is George Balanchine. And so, and, and interestingly, that's what Balanchine was doing as well. I mean, he was working with ballet, not so much as a storytelling medium, but as a visual musical medium and, and as a dance medium, you know, it's, it's people dancing. And so, um, I think that when you describing it as a, as a tonal, as opposed to a, a pure story connection, I think is, is accurate. Uh, and so with the ice skating and everything, I think, you know, there are there is an idea behind all of this and there's a, a thematic element that it's coming from, but it's wanting to produce these visual uh, moments of discovery and of excitement and interaction, you know, with the dolls. Um, and if you look a little bit deeper there, you know, within what's happening there, there are, there's more. But I think that that's a lot of it is, uh, you know, just working sculpturally essentially with uh color and form yeah well i i think i think that's something that when it comes to the overall i mean you know we when we look at immersive as a whole we're, we're not just concerned with it as, as theater and not just concerned with its narrative and i think that if anything uh, we're a little too obsessed with narrative in in american culture in general right i mean and i say this as someone who like loves story and loves narrative but we forget that there are other ways that ideas can be conveyed and it's one of the things that i always love about coming back to the dance world is that you know it it may only be the micro narrative of the relationship between two or three dancers and the way there's a tension between their bodies um but that speaks so much of of how we move through life and the way that there's tension between all of our bodies all the time, whether we, we know it or not in the way that, you know, architecture affects the way we move through a space and, 
and and just that these things get layered on and so that this idea that you're building you're building something archetypal and then almost you know building the reverse and you're building you're built knowing that you're going to send people into a winter wonderland you're deliberately building a reversal here what's crazy is there's there's gray walls and there's an exposed gray like i mean it is it is it is straight up gray in here yeah. and it is stark why? It, oh, by the way, was this this way? Did you just, you, no, I painted. Spit, you painted it. Yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you painted that too. The, the yeah. okay. All right. So you yeah. So there, like deliberate, deliberate, like tamping down. I mean, do you think? Do you start to think about? Are, are you thinking at all about like you know choreographing the way the audience is interacting with the space? I mean, I don't think of it in those terms, but. Uh, <clears throat> I do think of the audience experience um, because I think that, you know, my connection to ballet is as was as an audience member first, you know, uh, most, I think most kids that are, in, you know, go into ballet, their, their experiences as a dancer first. And then oftentimes they see ballet. I saw ballet as an adult, you know, a few times before I ever uh, took a dance class. And so um, I think I'm just always thinking about, you know, the audience experience, um, and, and, you know, one of the things that, you know, we do, and I don't know if this, um, well, yeah, I guess it happens each night. Uh, at a certain point, all the phones start ringing, you know, and then uh, one kid's name is called and they walk through. And that's actually, I wish you could see it from the other side, seeing this one kid walk into this space alone and they just have no idea what to do. Some of them, they'll stop. Oh, they'll that's not What's that? That's not a plant. That's that's just a kid. No. Think. So what we do is we we ask a, a parent that has an appropriate kid of the right age. We don't tell them what's going to happen. We say, "Are you are you okay with?" Sorry. You know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, everybody, I haven't had my coffee, and that means that the sensor is not activated. So, okay, continue, please. Yeah, and so we we say, you know, is, are you okay with your kid going off alone? And uh, and if they are, then you know we we accept that name, and then that kid doesn't know anything is going to happen. They just know their name's called, and you know even though it's it's this you know stripped down office, the the telephones are red, so you know there's some indication that you know something's going on. I think even to a kid, uh, and <clears throat> so anyway, the the kid gets that call, and um, sometimes the look on their face, like the, the, the staff was nearly in tears. I was watching cause you know, there's people at the bar and at the popcorn machine and all the musicians and everything and watching them watch the kid is, is one of the best parts of the night for me. Nice. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, it's a, it's a great moment. And like, it felt, I mean, that was, it, it felt staged. So in, kind of, in, in a way, kind of congratulations. Cause like, you know, they called the name, like no one responded. They called the name, then like a woman and like, a kid sort of started to make their way through the crowd and yeah. then like sort of, you know, she just progressed up the entire thing and like people were just like, what's going on? Then she went through and then again, like you know, the crowd was just like, are we, are we supposed to go, yeah. go in now? <laughs> you know, um, and, and it's interesting what you said about, you know, if, if the first person interacts, everyone else interacts. I remember, um, you know, the day shall declare it was one of, one of the early breakthrough pieces for the form in LA. And that was a, a piece from uh, the wilderness. Uh, I'm, there's, there's five things with a similar name. So I think I just screwed up Annie's name. Annie, sorry. Um, Annie Saunders company. And that was, that was a piece that was uh, heavily rooted in, in, in dance. Um, and, but what was interesting. There was like the, the audience was free form 
and I, I managed to see it a couple of times and the audience just sort of formed like a natural like proscenium audience kind of arch curve mm-hmm. to like kind of give space not realizing that they could you know, break through because they maybe hadn't seen something like this and gone to sleep more they didn't they didn't know and so it always took that first like gazelle to like come out of the herd and yeah. like show like no you can do this and then once oh another goes and then like oh i'm not gonna get in trouble and then suddenly you know you get, you get that flood going on of yeah exploring and and it, it's deliberately done you know as you know the, the when the audience comes in they face a mirror wall one of the audience members was complaining she felt like she was in an escape room and she thought she was so dumb because she didn't know how to get out of it you know she just couldn't <laughs> figure out where she was supposed to go but you know when she the the secretary at the last desk we cast it deliberately for these ones that kind of have these great blank expressions she moves the mirror and there's that red curtain there and the kid has to decide whether they're going to go or not and that's that was one of the things that i wanted the the kid to have to make the decision to walk into this world of mystery alone and then yeah it's some funny sometimes the rest of the audience wait a really long time and she doesn't help you she just stands there the door is open and you know, I think eventually somebody gets mad enough to be like, well, I bought a ticket. I'm going in. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I love it. I love it. Like there's, there's a part of me that's like, oh, well, you know, like we should be designing. And then another part of me is like, oh, there's an open door. Like, like what else are you supposed to do? You know, like you've, you've, you've removed all other options. They could go out the exit if they wanted to, but I think that the building wouldn't like that so much. Um, how how much are uh, bleh, again haven't had the coffee yet this morning um are you know you've done this with nutcracker uh have you done this with other works like played with this these elements yeah actually our first one um it w- it was very much more tonal uh well the okay so the very first one that we did was with our show uh inferno which is um in in october and uh, based on Dante's Inferno and uh, written by a contemporary living composer. And uh, we were in this skyscraper and, you know, there's, I had the idea of this, the audience walking through these neon gates. And what we ended up doing was the the whole building was a raw, exposed floor. And so we put uh, neon, white neon strips inside the uh, I-beams of the building and uh, hazed it up and that was the only light and the way that that interacted it reflected through the the glass so it looked like it continued on into the city and then you're looking at white you know neon signs on the opposite buildings and it had this really beautiful kind of eerie eerie effect and then I also got this uh this guy who's a keyboardist monster keyboardist he he's a genius um and he plays with a lot of uh, pop groups and things like that, but I made him learn the organ, <laughs> which he was willing to do. And he plays pop songs really slowly. So it just sounds like either, <laughs> a, either you've gone to heaven or you're at a funeral. And then um, at a certain point, it all just turns off and you feel like you're floating in the, you know, 32 floors above the city and, and the show begins. Uh, and then for our gala, uh, each year, which is, it's, it's a semi-gala, but it's, um, called Hellraiser. Then we have additional immersive elements, which I produced just for that evening Mm -hmm. in which those are very traditionally immersive where somebody will be taken out of the crowd, the party that's happening and taken somewhere and something will happen to them. How how is, how are you finding your audience responding to, to, to these elements into this form? 
you know, they, I think are delighted. Um, I think that especially, I mean, seeing their expressions on their face and hearing what they say. And I think part of it is that there has become this cultural drive to see the Nutcracker, Mm -hmm. you know, every holiday season. It's not like, you know, uh, people feel they must go to Swan Lake, but like in the United States, it's like a thing. And, but I think that they are prepared to sit through something which they will like part of, not understand part of, and be bored through a lot of. And I think that um, having it be something that isn't that, that is interacting with them with ways in which they're not expecting, um, is uh, exciting to them and refreshing, and they're they're excited to come back. And I mean, always by the end of Nutcracker, you know, we we don't have enough seats. We've, we have, we're doing 25 shows this year and we can't people, we can't, you know, we're turning people away. Um, but to me, I think it's really important to have your expectations defied when you go to theater in some way, Mm -hmm. you know, otherwise you are seeing something you've seen before and there's obviously a comfort to that, you know, there's an, but I think even when we, when, when I watch a movie I've seen before, it's usually something that I'm going to get something new out of, you know? Mm. And so I think it's just, uh, I think the less expected something is the better. Well, I mean, I think we make so much culture in our society. Um, and, and, you know, it's treated as, you know, people talk about content. We make a lot of content and like oftentimes it feels like that. It's just like, it's taken up space, you know, like Netflix just released 16 shows while I said that sentence, right? right? You know, it's just like, there's like dumps and dumps and dumps of stuff. And if, and if, if you're going and you're not, if it's not shaking you up at least a, a little bit, if it's not surprising you, yeah. you know, coming at you at a, at a different angle, um, it just feels like we're on this, this conveyor belt of, of, pablum and and or you know just i don't know it's just it's just another thing we consume yeah you know it gets all reduced down and so there's something for me it's always just about you know i mean in the early days it was always go somewhere i haven't been see something i haven't seen and then as i've been in this space longer it's really been about you know what ways can we make little moments that um, just kind of wake you back up for, for even just for a second, you know, yeah. um, like just coming into the space and seeing that, you know, there was, there was, uh, one, one of the dancers is, is set up as, uh, she's got an umbrella and she's got a, a wind up key in the back and she kind of winds down at a certain point and just stops. And then like an audience member come, came over and just wound her back up and at first I was like whoa whoa like getting handsy but then I was like oh no it's like it's meant to be there and then she went back on her routine and I was like oh what a wonderful what a wonderful moment you mm-hmm. know like what a wonderful little little chance for someone to like hey is this gonna is this gonna do what I think it's gonna do and have that be affirmed it's like yes you figured out something about the world yeah um, and I, I think that it really to me it it does go along with the the theme of Nutcracker because the, the original Nutcracker story is phenomenal. I don't know if you have you ever read any Hoffman, E.T.A. Hoffman? No, I haven't read the story. Like I had like a weirdly, I've had like a weird like um, 
cut out build your own nutcracker set thing when I was a kid, but like I just, I destroyed it by accident. So like trying to build (laughs) it, I destroyed it. I was like, and that's folks. Some would say I've done the same thing. Okay, cool. (laughs) But the story. (laughs) No, but well, Hoffman is, uh, I think less lesser known than he should be. Um, he is a phenomenally inventive author that was uh, tremendously influential on um, everyone who came after in his genre. And the Nutcracker story is quite dark. And uh, there's an, the, the central theme running through it is, is the young girl going to choose the Victorian dull gray life of her parents, or is she going to choose the, life of imagination which is you know the metaphor for the life of the artist and so part of what this is is the kid has to make a bunch of choices people have to make a bunch of choices moving through the space you know do i stand back or do i go through the gate you know and and so forth and so it's um, a lot about providing that theme experientially now when when uh tchaikovsky got the libretto it wasn't based on the hoffman uh, Alexander Dumas wrote Three Musketeers, wrote a version for French audiences based on it, but it wasn't as good. It was it had the teeth removed a little bit, and uh, Tchaikovsky didn't like the libretto, but he still wrote this amazing music. Interesting. So, the, so the, so it kind of all comes back, like it, it, you know the the choices you're sort of setting up, even though they're simple choices. Um, for the audience, it, it comes back to theme. Everything comes back to theme. Yeah, I think so. And and not that I I don't always think theme theme first. Like you know, here's the theme. How do I want to do it? I I know you know. There's it's a little more automatic than that. I'm you know I've got something and there's something that appeals to me about it. And then you know I'll get a bunch of ideas and then then work it out. But uh, those things are you know what really you know I don't think. Anybody, when I read this story, I didn't think anybody was going to, you know, take away from a traditional nutcracker, you know, watching a, a Victorian party happen, you know, in the first act and then, um, you know, watching this dream, it, you know, it's, it can be amazing for a kid, but I just think that the experience can be so much more than that. Yeah. Well, and, and I think that theme, <clears throat> I mean, the theme is strong. I mean, particularly like we live in such a, such an odd time right now. And like, I, I don't, sometimes I don't even know like how to start like parsing things like, you know, the, the world of the imagination versus sort of the world of your responsibilities. And, but, but I think that there's something about the, the bravery of the choice to step through the door Mm -hmm. to explore and, and being rewarded, having your curiosity rewarded, I think that's something we don't get enough of. Yeah, and I think that that's, <clears throat> I to me, curiosity, not losing curiosity, is w- one of the themes of my life. Like, <clears throat> I think that uh, the people that I'm most attracted to are the people that are most curious. Mm. And, uh, you know, there's you make the choice, you know, to interact with one of the two dolls. The one doll, you know, does the tarot cards. I don't know if you got one of those. I, I, my, I let my friend do that. And, and it's one beautiful cards and then you, and then scaled up to like 
cards you can buy. So, <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> well, the, but on the, the cards themselves, um, yeah. there's actually a poem on the back, which uh -huh. was written originally. And it just looks like pattern, like a, a pattern on the back of a card. But if you look, it's actually words. Oh my goodness. And it plays into the, the general themes of, I had them written by a, a living poet who, and it plays into the, the themes that the it's treating on. That's fantastic. Yeah. Lincoln, what what else can we expect from the company? Uh, either either things with immersive elements or not over the next the rest of the season and, and looking forward to the next year. Um, Obviously, gonna, the new space is going to be a, a big part. What, could you tell us a little, little bit about the new space? Yeah, the new space is uh, phenomenal. It's um, it's some it's somewhere where that. Uh, I, I don't actually don't know if I'm supposed to say addresses or anything yet, so I won't, I won't say that. But, addresses, but yeah. it's um, it's something that I've wanted for a long time, which is that uh, the space is um, inherently flexible. There's tons of space. I've essentially wanted a, a giant soundstage where you know if I wanted you to not be aware of the walls, you cannot be aware of the walls, and mm. we've we've got that here. Um, it also gives the dancers a lot more room, so they can move even bigger, uh, and uh, just allows us to do a whole lot. Um, also, just having a stable home will be <laughs> wonderful. Um, Amazing what they can do for an artist. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, this year we've spent a lot of time just figuring out where we're going to be next and how to adapt that. But um, the in terms of what's coming from the company, um, w you know, it's I, I think that along with my idea of providing uh, an experience for the audience that they haven't had um, that includes the ballet audience as well. And, and so the repertory that we do um, it's, it's always just genuine. I mean, like we've produced, I don't think I've ever repeated a ballet except for uh, Inferno and burlesque, which is because that, and that's for a specific reason. Um, we did Inferno then we commissioned a new ballet burlesque from that same composer and we're commissioning an, another ballet from him, Salome, uh, for this year. And so that ultimately October is going to become this rotation. You can see two ballets a night, but there'll be different ballets. Mm. Um, so it's kind of a, a festival of, of darkness. <laughs> um, <clears throat> and we have got a new ballet coming up in August. Um, in June, I'm going to experiment with uh, a ballet from the Ballet Russe era, um, playing or a sort of taking, Balanchine took this ballet that had been done uh, by Fokine, um, Les Sylphides, mm -hmm. and he sped it up and he put it in practice clothes. And it had this sort of revelatory result. And so I'm starting with that same concept, but may tinker with it even further. Um, so yeah, a lot more of the unexpected, I'd say. Fantastic. Well, Lincoln, uh, for folks who want to find American Contemporary Ballet, how do they connect with you? Uh, ACB Dances, ACB, like American Contemporary Ballet, dances.com. Um, they can also just Google American Contemporary Ballet. I think that, you know, probably comes up. It, it does. Okay. <laughs> you're lucky you're the first hit. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks, Lincoln. Absolutely. Thank you. Once again, I want to thank Lincoln for being our guest on the show today. Check out what they are up to over at American Contemporary Ballet at acbdances.com. Um, why, why has this year been so hard, y'all? I don't... 
<laughs> I don't, uh, I don't get it. I don't, I don't get it. Um, this, this year has been just like, you know, last year was nasty and this year's just been, ugh, ugh, right? Um, I, I, I'm, here's the, here's the truth. I'm neither a pessimist nor an optimist. Um, sometimes I think of myself as like a utopian realist where, um, like it's about what do we need to do to get to a better world? Um, but, uh, uh, whew, man, just, just, just the, the, the dice rolls keep on coming up garbage. Um, I mentioned earlier, I'm going in for an extraction today, uh, and the, the hot water heater just conked out at the apartment. So that's really fun. Um, and there's, there are good things on the horizon. Um, I just got word about something, uh, last night, which, uh, I don't want to jinx. So I won't mention it until, um, certain logistical things have been completed, but I got some, I got some fun news. Uh, and we are indeed like, like ticket badge sales are going, going good for here so far. There's definitely still capacity, but, um, you know, we're, 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 we're pushing through. And indeed, I, you know, if, if you, if you're someone who, like I mentioned, if you've been given your clearance, um, just know that the pool is about to get like a lot bigger, a lot more people in the pool next week. So just, you know, take advantage of the weekend, uh, to, to, to snap it up and get it done, um, before they go bye-bye. Uh, cause we will sell out this, this batch of tickets by the end of the month. I, I guarantee that. Um, it's definitely different from what we did before, like the whole invitation thing. And, and frankly, it's a lot less stressful on my end, which I, I just, oh boy, yeah, no. Um, it's been a weird one for the community as well. And I, you know, I got to say, I think that has a lot to do with some of the long-term issues that we've got um, that we haven't been able to, to solve uh, collectively yet. Um, capacity on shows is a big one. Um, and sort of the irony of it all is, uh, there, there definitely were some shows this year that, uh, increased their capacity, but, uh, then weren't able to sell through as fast as, as they would, they would like to. Um, and there's a tool that can help with that, that I think creators should really seriously be looking at, uh, particularly when, and I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna call anyone out in particular, but particularly when, some shows, you know, that first week, it's still really beta, right? Like inside the community, we know, we know that like the first week of a show, there's still changes being made. Some stuff can be rough. We, we're forgiving. Uh, but, but the wide world isn't necessarily forgiving. And the wide world is noticing uh, over here in LA in here in Los Angeles. KCRW just did a piece about the scene uh, that aired. And, uh, you know, I think it's going to run uh, to Day again as part of the, the All Things Considered block. I don't know if it's going to run nationally or not, uh, but it's definitely going to be running locally again. Um, and and you know, there, there's there's peaks and valleys, and there there are these troughs of disillusionment, and folks may want to go like, ah, oh, throw in the towel, or like, why didn't my opening week sell out? It's like, well, you're charging a whole bunch of money, and no one knows what the product is yet. Uh, and there's this tool, there's this tool called progressive pricing and the way it works. And I've talked about it a little bit before the way it works is you set your prices at the start of the run lower than you set your prices towards the end of the run. 
And what you're doing is you're encouraging people to come at the start of the run because you have faith in what you've built. And you also, to some degree, know, uh, maybe you're going to tweak a few things. And, you know, pretty much, look, every 10, 5 to 10 bucks you put on a ticket price, the expectation for, for how much polish is going to be in that work goes up. And you can, you know, and I'm talking to creators right now, you know, you're looking at your math and you're like, oh man, like I priced this at X and the ticket sales aren't coming. So now I'm going to discount a bunch in order to get people in the door and your last minute discounting and no one's got the time to come see. And then suddenly you've got unused capacity. Why go through all that when you can price your tickets lower at the start and then raise the roof as you go. Let's take an example of something like Cages, which is selling out. Uh, Cages, which uh, has some immersive elements, but it's not an immersive show, and was in previews for a very, very long time, both both friends and family previews, and then finally paid previews. And then as they open up and they go from preview to to, fully running the show, uh, the ticket price goes up. And they take the time to figure out how to do the thing before they start charging the full. And I get it, and I know people don't have a lot of runway. All right, but you're going to benefit way more by dedicating a few nights or a week or dedicating a curve to get more people in. And when you're negotiating with venues, you know, look into the idea of extension, negotiate out that from the start, try to make sure that you've got somewhere to go. This is um, fundamental stuff that you need to be doing in order to have that sense of stability and move from strength to strength. Better to, I mean, and also like if you run the math and if you're doing, if if the tickets are like, you know, 60% of what they would normally be, but you're having a full sellout versus having 50% of a sellout at the full price. You know, there's the math, 60% or 100%. And I'm, I'm certain, I'm pretty much certain that there's a thing I call the fear price when it comes to, to, to budgeting this stuff, where you set your ticket price based on what you need in order to make this thing go, knowing that you're only going to sell 65%, knowing that you're only going to sell 50%, right? The fear price. Um, that is a short-term thinking um, and for so many things are going to lose money anyway, that, uh, if you're, if you're, if you're leaning too far in that direction, you're, you're self-fulfilling prophecy. So progressive pricing, please, as you're making your plans for 2020, really look hard at this, incorporate it in, make it part of what you do. It's also, does it mean that the folks in the community who you know were going to buy tickets anyway are going to come in at those prices because you're going to go right at the start? Sure. But it also gives them a better chance of coming back. The repeat business thing is real and it helps word of mouth bubble faster, right? And it also means that folks who are maybe a little curious, they may come in, right? We are very, very, very far from having maxed out the potential audience for this kind of work or light years from it, but we are in danger of pricing people out um, and making it something that is premium only uh, 
and then unfortunately premium only and not delivering on premium feeling experiences. And that right there, that will be the thing that ruins us if that comes to pass. So look at progressive pricing, think about it, think really, really long and hard about it. Okay, um, that's your bit of unsolicited advice this week, but seriously, please, for little God. Um, and yeah, uh, I don't know. All I all I see in front of me are um, are, are are these mountains. Uh, the the tooth extraction coming up um, a few hours here. I'm so excited. Um, Star Wars is next week, so uh, you will not see me on social media for a few days. Uh, uh, you'll see posts from us and everything, but I personally like Noah as Noah won't be around, but don't worry. Nothing happened to me. I'm just going on my sabbatical so that no one ruins the thing for me. Uh, anyone who deliberately tries to ruin the movie for me will be excommunicated permanently from my life. Um, and, uh, yeah, uh, there, there we go. That's all that. Um, and God's willing, um, We've got a chance for a whole new decade. So uh, humanity's last. So let's make it count. All right. All right. Let's do the credit for the show. The music for No Persinium is by Chris Porter of the Speakeasy Society. The sustaining backers of No Persinium are, I really have to look at the list now because there are so many folks, which is really awesome. Mark Baltazar, Jan Budman, Paul F., Lonnie Hansen, Ari Hurston, Sam Kinkin, Samuel Mistry, Sidney Guillory, and Jeremy Charles Hahn. Um, you can find everything we do at nopersinium.com. You can find all the information you need about the Here Summit at herefest.com. The Facebook group is Everything Immersive. Uh, and until next time, I'll see you at the show.